You are listening to audio from Faith Church. If you are in the Seminole, St. Pete area, we would love for you to join us on a Sunday. To learn more, visit us at faithrs.org. If you have your Bible or your Bible app, let's go to the book of 2 Timothy together. 2 Timothy chapter 3. That's where we'll be this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And if you don't have a Bible, you don't own a Bible, we'd love to give you one. There are stacks of Bibles on the tables in the back of the room. You can grab one of those now. That's our gift to you with no strings attached. Also, I forgot to remind you during the welcome this morning, today's a communion Sunday. So if you forgot to pick up your communion elements, you can sneak back there and grab those now. We'll celebrate communion together here in just a bit. Uh, If you're willing and able, will you stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word this morning? I want to read for us 2 Timothy chapter 3, and our focus today will be just a few verses, verses 14 to 17. So listen carefully to God's word. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. You know, if you, um, if you didn't live through the 80s, I sort of feel sorry for you. I feel like you have just missed out on so many important things and so many cinematic masterpieces. I mean, just think for a moment with me about the 80s and the great films that we saw come out in the 80s. Think about movies like The Empire Strikes Back, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Ghostbusters, Back to the Future, Did you know we have a guy at Faith Church who owns a DeLorean? He's the coolest guy I know. He might have driven it to church today. You should look in the parking lot when you go out there. Think about movies like Top Gun, the original one. The new one's great, but the original one came out in the 80s. We don't yet have anybody in the church who has an F-14. But the church is growing, so I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful. And then, of course, there's that, that cult classic that I know many of you love, cherish, from 1987, I think it was, The Princess Bride. Princess Bride. If I get any of the details of this movie wrong today, I know you will come and tell me immediately after the service. If you haven't seen The Princess Bride, it begins with uh, this small boy, and his grandfather is telling him a story about a farm boy turned pirate who encounters a series of obstacles and eccentric villains and allies as he goes on a quest for his long-lost love, Buttercup. And one of the uh, eccentric villains that he meets, if I remember correctly, is a man named Vizzini. Vizzini is the mastermind. He's the brains of this group of bandits that has kidnapped Buttercup. And in the movie, you might remember this if you've seen it, Vizzini has a favorite word. He says it over and over and over again. The word is... That's it. That's it. Somebody even like threw the accent in there. Inconceivable. Inconceivable. Vizzini says this word over and over and over until finally the Spaniard, Inigo Montoya, says to him, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. 
Today we begin a new four-part series that will answer just one question, and that question is, what is an evangelical? What is an evangelical? This term, evangelical, it has become ubiquitous in recent years. We read it in the headlines. We hear so-and-so refer to themselves as an evangelical. We see this person over here being accused of being an evangelical because of certain priorities. In pop culture, the word evangelical has taken on a certain meaning. It really has come to mean something like a white person who is vaguely religious and who votes Republican. But what I want to help you see in this series is that there is a much deeper meaning to this term evangelical. Now, why does any of this matter? Why should it matter to you? Well, because you're here. And by the way, many of you are very new here. About 120 adults and children have joined Faith Church since 2020. About 120 since 2020. So roughly 50 or 60% of you are very new. So this is probably a good time to do a series like this to clarify what is a key term around here. You're here, and so you should care about this word evangelical because here is Faith Church. And Faith Church is part of the evangelical Presbyterian Church. So if you're our guest today, simply by being here, you are affiliating with evangelicals. And if you are one of our gospel partners, then you have affirmed, I am an evangelical. But then maybe you read the headlines and you hear about evangelicals doing this and evangelicals saying that. And you begin to think to yourself, is that who I am? Do I want to be associated with that camp? What do we mean here at Faith Church when we say we are evangelicals? Well, that's what this series will be all about. Here's the big idea for the next four weeks. So much of what goes by the name evangelical these days is better termed evangelifish. No doctrinal solidity, no missional spine, merely a political pulpy mass. And that's unfortunate because... The word evangelical comes from the Greek word euangelion, meaning gospel. That's what it means. Evangelicals are a global family, a coalition of Bible-believing Christians committed to sharing with everyone everywhere the good news of new life in Jesus Christ, an utterly free gift that comes through faith alone in the crucified and risen Savior. Now, from that definition, we can distill four marks. So at Faith Church, when we say we are evangelicals, here's what we mean. We mean that we are Bible people, gospel people, born-again people, and Great Commission people. Notice there's nothing political in any of that. There's a theological, a biblical meaning. We are Bible people, gospel people, born-again people, and Great Commission people. And each week of this series, we'll take one of these and we'll unpack it together, beginning with Bible people. 
And we could say it like this. As evangelicals, we believe certain things about the Bible, four things in particular. We find all four of them in that short passage that I just read for us, 2 Timothy chapter 3. We believe in the clarity of the Bible, the authority of the Bible, the necessity of the Bible, and the sufficiency of the Bible. Now let's take those one at a time and consider what they mean and why they matter. So clarity, authority, necessity, and sufficiency. First, the clarity of the Bible. Look at the beginning of this passage that I read. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And we should begin with just a brief word about 2 Timothy, this letter as a whole. This is the Apostle Paul's final letter, final letter that we possess anyways. He likely wrote this letter a few years before he died. He dispatched this letter to the city of Ephesus, where his delegate, Timothy, had been stationed. And Timothy had his hands full. He had his hands full. He was combating false teaching in the city. He was trying to help the faithful Christians guard the gospel. And so Paul begins this passage writing to Timothy by saying, Hey, Timothy, you've got to continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Timothy, you are the leader of the leaders in this city. People are looking to you. And so if you swerve from the truth, you will lead others astray. And then Paul goes on to remind Timothy of this long line of Bible teachers. It stretches back all the way to his childhood. People that have brought to him the word of God. Paul says from childhood, from infancy even. Timothy, you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now, this reference to the sacred writings, here in context, it refers specifically to the Old Testament. But here's the point that Paul is making. He is showing us that the sacred writings, the scriptures, the Bible, this is something that can be understood from childhood. See, this is what we mean by the clarity of the Bible. We don't mean that every verse of the Bible is equally obvious. Okay? That's not what the clarity of the Bible means. There are some confusing, complicated bits and pieces. Go read Genesis 6. Who in the world are the sons of God in Genesis 6? Go read 1 Peter 3. Who are the spirits in prison in 1 Peter 3? Go read the end of Mark's gospel. Who in the world is this young man who decides to go streaking through the Garden of Gethsemane? You ever read that part? What's up with that guy? And why is that detail even included in the Gospel of Mark? I guess the dude just needed some air. Sometimes guys just got to run around naked. Who knows why that's in the Bible? So the clarity of the Bible does not mean that every verse is equally obvious, nor does it mean that every question we bring to the Bible will be answered. But here's what the clarity of the Bible does mean. It means that because God is not a God of confusion, He's a God of clarity, the major or primary message of the Bible is understandable, accessible to anyone 
who will come to the Bible seeking God's help in reading and applying it. See, the clarity of the Bible means that the Bible is for you. If you have been using this excuse, oh, you know, I don't, I don't study the Bible that often because, well, I'm, I'm not trained as a Bible scholar. I'm not trained in biblical interpretation. If that's been your excuse, then the Lord has you here today to show you that that excuse is not a valid one. It's not a valid one. The Bible is not merely for the educated or the elites in society. No, the Bible is for everyone. The Bible is for you and parents, grandparents. The Bible is for your children and for your grandchildren. I've said this before, but we're prone to forget. So I'll say it again today. Parents, we tend to value most. We tend to worship whatever it is we think will take our children farthest in life. That's a temptation we need to be aware of in our own hearts. Even many Christian parents have been duped into worshiping the success-promising trinity of good looks, good grades, and athletic ability. Now listen, having a fast 400, it's not a bad thing. Having a high GPA, that's not a bad thing. Parents, teach your children to be disciplined athletes and diligent students. Nothing wrong with that, but don't worship these things. Don't rearrange your entire life around these things. Set some boundaries. If you don't, you will never prioritize the spiritual development of your children. The Bible is for them. The absolute most important thing that a parent can do is ensure that the children growing up in that home have been acquainted with the sacred writings from childhood, from infancy. The Bible is for you and for your family. That's what we mean by clarity. It's understandable. It's accessible for you. Now, second, we also, as evangelicals, believe in the authority of the Bible. Notice verse 16. Paul says, all Scripture is breathed out by God. Now, he uses a really interesting word here that's translated breathed out by God. It's just one word. It's the word theonoustos. This is the only time this word is used in the New Testament. It only occurs in later literature. So probably Paul coined this term. He made it up. And it's a combination of two words. Theos, God, and neo, to breathe. So the Bible is God breathed. And this is not telling us how we got the Bible. That's not the point of the term. It's not as if God in heaven one day exhaled and magically, abracadabra, words on the page. Paul's not telling us how we got the Bible. He's telling us the source. God is the source of Scripture. He spoke to and through human authors like Paul, the very Paul we're studying this morning. But God is the source of the biblical message, therefore, it is our authority. It comes from God himself. And as he spoke to and through these human authors, he didn't zap them and put them into a trance-like state, making them mindless machines like human typewriters or something. 
the biblical authors, their personalities and their backgrounds and their vocabularies remained intact. Luke, for example, was a physician. He was trained as a physician, and so he wrote his gospel as a physician. But as Peter tells us in his second letter, men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. God, the source of Scripture, carried along the biblical writers, ensuring, empowering them in such a way, ensuring that they recorded God's message for us. So when we open the Scriptures, we have a reliable, trustworthy Bible. It's our authority. Now, how does this play out in our own lives? Well, if you believe in the authority of the Bible, then your life will be one of utter submission to the Bible. It means that when you have questions before you, questions like, who should I date and one day marry? You submit to the teaching of the Bible. The Bible is supreme in your life. When you have questions like, should I discipline my children and if so, how? You should submit to the teaching of the Bible. The Bible should be supreme in your life. I remember many years ago, the late R.C. Sproul, he said, the true test of whether or not we believe in the authority of the Bible is this. The true test is what do you do with the parts of the Bible you don't like? Like when in Matthew 18... One of the disciples comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, how often, how many times must I forgive my brother? As many as seven times? And Jesus says, no, 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 77 times. To make the point, you must always forgive your brother or sister. Now, when you've been hurt by someone, really hurt, you don't like that verse. You don't want to forgive And it's in moments like that that you will discover if you really believe in the authority of the Bible. See, this statement, the authority of the Bible, it must be understood as shorthand for the authority of God as He speaks to us through the Bible. So secondly, as evangelicals, that's what we believe. We believe in the authority of the Bible. Third, we believe in the necessity of the Bible. Let's keep reading verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. The Bible is profitable. It's beneficial. We need it. We need it. In the same way that a man with weak vision needs glasses to see clearly, like me. If I take these glasses off, this is not a fashion statement. If I take these off, you know what I see out there? A bunch of blobs. I mean, no offense, a bunch of blurry blobs that I'm just talking at. I need these to see clearly. We need the Bible to see God clearly, to see God's world clearly, and to see our place within His world clearly. And Paul tells us several reasons that we need the Bible. One he's already given us in this passage earlier. It's because in the Bible we find the path of salvation. The sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation. There is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is revealed in the Bible. That means that we need the Bible and the world needs the Bible 
so that we can learn God's plan of salvation. But he goes on to give us four more reasons here in verse 16. We need the Bible because it supplies teaching, instruction in godly living. What should I believe? What type of person ought I to be becoming? The Bible instructs us in faith and formation. We also need the Bible because it provides reproof or rebuke. The Bible shows us our sin. See, here's something you have to come to terms with. There are perilous practices in your life and in mine. There are dark corners of our hearts that cannot be exposed without the light of the Word of God. We need the Bible to show us our sin. And then the Bible also provides correction or recovery. See, Scripture points out our sin and then it points out the way forward. It shows us the need for repentance, calls us to change. The term that Paul uses here is sometimes used of the rebuilding of the walls of a city. And here's why that matters. When you feel like the walls of your life are just falling down, everything is going wrong, everything is collapsing, you feel like you're never going to get out from under this rubble, the Bible will convince you otherwise. It will show you that there is a path to recovery. It's the path of repentance, turning back to the Lord. There is hope. We need the Bible to give us that hope. And then Paul says we need the Bible because it provides training in righteousness or right relatedness. It is in the scriptures that we learn how to have a right relationship with God first and foremost and a right relationship with others. The Bible is something we desperately, desperately need. That's the third point. One more this morning. We also as evangelicals believe in the sufficiency of the Bible. So the clarity, the authority, the necessity, and finally the sufficiency. Look at how Paul concludes this passage. All Scripture is breathed out by God. God is the source. And it's profitable. It's beneficial for us. It provides teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that the man or the person of God may be complete. Complete. Equipped for every good work. Now again, this term sufficiency, much like clarity, we we need to have a, a careful understanding of it. We're not saying that the Bible is going to provide every type of information you might need in life. You need to do some motorcycle maintenance, probably shouldn't go to the Bible on that one. You need to critique the form of your deadlift. You need to know how long to smoke a brisket. Probably not going to find those answers in the Bible, right? So that's not what we mean when we say the Bible is sufficient. But what we mean is the Bible contains everything we need to know about God and everything we need to know to live faithfully as God's people, to flourish as His people. Everything. Now, that's a really freeing statement. Let me try to help you feel how freeing it is. Many years ago, when I was doing my 
my doctoral studies, and I was working on my doctoral thesis. I had three years to get this thing written, and I had about a 40-page bibliography. So 40 pages of articles and books and just stuff that I had to read over those three years. Because if you've ever done higher-level research like this, you know the expectation is that you will make some sort of an original contribution in your field. And to get that started, you've got to read basically everything that's been written, or at least all the important stuff, in your field. But the problem is there is so much stuff that's already been written in your field. And there are new works coming out every month. And so up until the very end of my thesis, I had this dreadful fear. And the fear was, what if there is something I've missed? What if there's some obscure, you know, French article or German monograph, something I should have read and I didn't because I just missed it? Or even worse, what if right before I submit my thesis, some really important new work is published and I haven't read it? And here I'm sending this thing off to my examiners and this new work just came out and I don't know anything about it. I had this dreadful fear, what if there's something else out there? Something I should have discovered something I should know. Here's what the sufficiency of the Bible means. It means that you don't have to go through life wondering, is there something else out there? Is there something else I need to know? Is there something I've missed? You don't have to live that way. Because God has told us He's given us everything Everything we need to know about him, everything we need in order to live faithfully as his children and to flourish right here, right here in this book. That's what the sufficiency of Scripture means. So, it's the start of the summer. It's a new season. Maybe it's time for you to hit the reset button reprioritize some things in your life, right? Establish some new habits. Rebuild some good habits that once you had and well, things have just gotten busy. And in your heart, you know, you haven't been prioritizing God's Word the way you should. See, if you want to be like Joshua in the Old Testament, who says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord then you must say, as for me and my house, we will study the word of the Lord. Evangelicals are Bible people. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we are reminded this morning of our need for your word. As our corporate prayer this morning, we use your very words, the words of Psalm 119. With our whole hearts, we seek you. Let us not wander from your commandments. We have stored up your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach us your statutes. With our lips, we declare all the rules of your mouth. 
in the way of your testimonies we delight as much as in all riches. We will meditate on your precepts and fix our eyes on your ways. We will delight. We will delight in your statutes. And, oh God, we will not forget your word. It is in this very word, the written word, that we learn about the word incarnate, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. As we enter into this time of communion, we ask you to forgive us for the things we have done and the things we have left undone. We have not loved you, God, with our whole selves. And we have not loved our neighbor the way you teach us to love. We stand before you today, humble, penitent. Forgive us, O Lord. And thank you for that wonderful promise of your word that when we confess our sins like this, you are faithful and you are just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All because of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. If you are a baptized follower of Jesus, we invite you to celebrate communion with us today. When we celebrate communion, we do three things. We remember, we receive, and we rejoice. We remember the sacrifice of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who died in our place for our sins and who was raised from the dead. We remember. We receive spiritual nourishment to live for King Jesus here and now. And we rejoice because we know the promise promise of Jesus himself that one day he will return to complete his plan for this world he will rid this world of sin and suffering of darkness and death so believers remember receive and rejoice with us today on the night our Lord Jesus was betrayed after giving thanks he took the bread and he broke it and he said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me In the same way, he took the cup and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Brothers and sisters, celebrate the good news of the gospel.